they <clears throat> beautiful sloka in the second chapter of Bhagavad Gita. Ragadve Shiva Mukta is to Vishayan Indrayaishcharan Atma Vishaya Vidhe Atma Prasadam Adhikachchati This means that one who follows the regulative principles of spiritual life can attain the complete mercy of the Lord and thus become free from all attraction and aversion. The regulative principles are described in two categories. There is yama and there is niyama. Things that should be done and things that should not be done. Or in other words, as Srila Rupa Goswami has said, one must accept those things favorable for advancement in spiritual life and one must reject those things unfavorable for advancement in spiritual life. These, according to Srila Rupa Goswami, these two principles are the fundamental principles of surrender. To accept what is favorable and to reject what is unfavorable for our spiritual progress. This means we must discipline our life. Oftentimes in this day and age where people are very superficial in their approach to everything important in life, people do not understand the need of discipline for spiritual progress. Uh, there was one very famous yogi that came to the West and he became very, very popular. And what he taught is that whatever you're doing, you just go on doing. If you like cigarettes, smoke cigarettes. If you like alcohol, no problem with alcohol. If you like sex outside of your marriage life, I don't recommend it, but what can we do? If if sometimes you steal and sometimes you lie, I do not recommend it, but what can you do? But you should meditate every morning and meditate every evening for a half hour, and you should give me your money, and I will teach you the process. Our Guru Maharaj used to often cite this person's teachings. And he would compare them to the teachings of yoga as described in the Bhagavad Gita, as well as in the Patanjali Yoga Sutras, as well as in all the great scriptures. Krishna says in Gita, for one 
who does not control his mind and senses, there is no question of yoga, whatever you do. Yoga or religion means discipline. The basic principle of every original religion in this world is discipline. The Old Testament, which is the scripture of the Jews in the West, and which is the basis of the scriptures of all Christians, teaches the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet another's property, thou shalt not commit adultery, uh, so many thou shalt not. And also in the chapter Leviticus, the Lord is giving so many instructions of one, what one should do. So basically this is yama and niyama. What is to be done and what is not to be done. And we must discipline our life accordingly. Now according, what I'm saying is people are very superficial in their approach to religion. We are giving a little example from various traditions. In the Christian tradition, Oftentimes we are preaching to Christians and we teach them that your religion is perfect providing you follow Lord Jesus perfectly. After all, Christian doesn't mean one who goes to church. Christian means one who follows Christ. Now what does Christ say? In America, That is very sweet. <laughs> Maybe we should just listen to him. <laughs> ah, you are, you are his interpreter. You see, whenever the voice comes from above, you need an interpreter. <laughs> Otherwise, we misunderstand. I was thinking he was saying that, what are you saying, nonsense? <laughs> but you see, and if you want to understand what the higher powers, and this is higher, you have to approach one who knows. Right? Yes, yes, because you are his intimate associate. You know what he means. So many people read the scriptures and they think, I think this, I think this. That's why it is said, Tadvikyanartam Sugurum Eva Abhigachchek. If you want to know the scriptures, you have to approach one who is an intimate associate who knows God. Huh? What do I know about this cuckoo bird? <laughs> but you are a resident of his abode. <laughs> and you have descended to give us the true understanding of what this transcendental sound vibration really indicates to our life. So thank you very much. <laughs> Through this example we can understand the need for a guru, a transparent via media to the higher voice. Ah. So Lord Jesus Christ, he has many followers and they when they hear us preaching the four regulative principles, no illicit sex, no intoxication, no gambling, no meeting, they're saying, what is this, all these no's? You do whatever you want, you just believe. 
This is the common conception. You just believe. You go to church, you give some money, you pray, you believe. You're saved. No problems. You don't have to change your life. If we like to drink, if we like to, after all, alcohol is the blood of Christ, so drink it. And if you like to engage in illicit activities, why not? But what does Christ say? Christ said in the Bible, of course in America, everyone is very attracted to illicit sex. The whole idea of dating, every parent feels if their children are not going on dates by the time they're 14 or 15, there's something wrong with them. What a difference in culture. In India, if parents find out their children are going on dates, they are very angry, what are you doing? But in America, if they're not going on dates, they're very angry, saying, what are you doing? What are you not doing? Huh? I never went on date. My parents used to say, is there something wrong with you? Why, why are you, what's wrong? I said, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't have any philosophy. <laughs> so, Jesus said, not only, in the Old Testament, Moses said, God said to Moses, do not commit adultery. I say, if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery, and you should tear out your eye and throw it on the ground. Because it's better to be one less eye than to have your soul burn in hell. Huh? That's the teachings of the Guru. Of course, what the people say the Guru says is, don't matter, forget your eyes, forget all these other things, just have faith. If you have faith, you'll do what the person says. In fact, Jesus said, those who enter into the king, to, who go to the gate of God and say, Lord, Lord. He said, the Lord will cast you away. And say, I only accept those, not those who cry out, Lord, Lord, but those who do the will of God. This means discipline. In the Vedic tradition, in the Bhagavad Gita, there are so many disciplines given. What must be avoided strictly and what must be accepted. Lord Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, he said, Asat Sangha, what is that song? What is that verse? Uh, he, he describes that uh, one must avoid the association of materialistic and sinful people. Asat Sangatyaga Avaishnav Achar. And one must keep the association of saintly persons. One must avoid intoxications, illicit sex, gambling, eating of meat. One must avoid causing harm to other living beings. One must avoid speaking of worldly topics that simply lead to envy and greed. One must accept spiritual topics. One must accept the chanting of God's name. One must accept holy association. These are forms of discipline. Yoga means to discipline the mind and discipline the senses. Krishna says in the Gita, 
Now factually, in every field of life, if you are not willing to discipline yourself, how will you progress and become great? The greatest athletes are the ones who discipline them themselves to the greatest extent in that field of athletics. Just like in America, you know who, which athlete is the highest paying athletes? Do you know who? Huh? Boxers. The people who beat each other in the heads with their fists. <laughs> They're the highest paying. World champion fighters, one fight, they get several million dollars. And it might last only 30 seconds, it doesn't matter, they get several million dollars. If you win, and you get a couple million if you lose. Hmm? So, what did they do to become so great and famous to make so much money? They have to just discipline their body and exercise and just practically torture themselves and give up the most famous boxer of modern history, Muhammad Ali. His common rule of thumb is he would not even have sex with his wife for three months before a fight. Even though he said, I'm such a lusty fellow, he told, he told this to one of our devotees. He was very good friends with one of our devotees. He said, I'm a very lusty fellow. I love sex life very much. But I know if I have sex, I'll weaken my system and I will not have high performance in my fight. Therefore, I, although I have no desire to be a monk, I'm a monk for three months before every fight. <laughs> Because that's what I, I have to tolerate the urge to have top performance and strength. And as far as running around and just doing all his, he says, hours and hours and hours a day of torturing his body to get in shape. And the reason why he's so great is because he's willing to discipline himself to that extent. Even in college, who are the best students? The people who discipline themselves to the studies the most. It's like when I went to Philadelphia to build, visit Keshava. My God, he didn't have time to do anything except study. Everyone else is dancing and, you know, not Krishna dancing, but all other nonsense <laughs> dancing. At these colleges, everyone's dancing and drinking and having fun and going to places and restaurants and dates and everything. Ah, But he's just, oh, library, books, study, right? Fixed. And therefore, he did super excellent in his studies because he disciplined himself. What to speak of doctors? A doctor, in order to get his position, he has to go through years and years and years of discipline. So if we want to be successful in any field of activity, there must be discipline.
what to speak of religion. Today, people think that they have to discipline themselves in every other avenue of life, but when it comes to religion, whatever you think is all right, whatever I think is all right, whatever I want to do is all right, whatever you want to do is all right, I will discipline my job, I will discipline my family life, but my religion, whenever I have time, then I'll do it. If I don't have time, it's God's arrangement. Don't blame me. I want to do it, but there's just no time. If one is serious about making spiritual advancement, one must discipline his time. There is the story of Srila Bhaktivinoda Thakur. Bhaktivinoda Thakur was a uh, magistrate. He was a judge under the British rule of India. This was in the um, latter part of the 19th century. And he was so disciplined that every morning he would rise during the Brahma Muhurta hour, several hours before the sunrise. And he would chant on his mala for several hours, chant japa. Then he would study the scripture. Then he would write transcendental literatures. Then he would have kirtan. Then he would go to his work. And he would discipline himself greatly in his work also. He was the, he was the most prominent magistrate in all of Bengal and Orissa. In fact, he was so expert that he wanted to retire, to dedicate his life to completely to spiritual activities. But the British government said that you do in one day what ten magistrates do in one day. How can we let you go? It is not possible. You are the most qualified, you are the most efficient, you are the most perfect. Every one of his decisions no one would question because he had such piercing intelligence, such piercing pers perspective, because he had such God-given qualities. He had no greed, no lust, no anger, no envy. He was completely impartial. He could completely fix his concentration on whatever he was doing in the service of God. Therefore, from the material point of view, he was unparalleled. And from the spiritual point of view, even the greatest sadhus and sannyasis, although he had a wife and he had, what, 12 children? He had 12 children. 13, 13 children, huh? I forgot. 13 children. And yet the sannyasis and the brahmacharis from all over would come and touch his feet and sit at his feet to learn from him. This is how much he was respected in both material and spiritual circles. And after he would get back from his work, he would meet with his family, he would bathe, he would have prasad, he would engage his family in helping him in his missionary activities, he would go out to villages, to propagate the glories of the Lord's name, to distribute prasad to the poor. He was always well ready 
that all justice on all levels, spiritual and practical, would be upheld for all living beings. He was the most highly respected. And his life was very disciplined. And he taught us by our example that Grihastha life can be a great spiritual opportunity for progress toward God if in the Grihastha life we discipline our life according to the spiritual principles of the scriptures. And Bhaktivinoda Thakur also taught us by his example that if you do like this, do not listen to what the atheists and the agnostics have to say that if you become too involved in your religion you will become impotent in this world and in this society. He taught that if you truly are empowered by Guru Shakti and by the mercy of God you will be the most efficient, most proficient according to your capacity in every aspect of your life. Compare yourself to Bhaktivinoda Thakur. How many children do you have? Huh? Maybe one or two or three or maybe four. Does anyone have more than five children in the room? How difficult it is to, to train them nicely. Bhaktivinoda Thakur had 13 children and every one of them was a saint. Every one of them was highly learned Every one of them was perfectly responsible in all spiritual and social affairs. And yet, he was loved even by the saints and the sadhus. The Lord empowered him simply to show that if you become advanced in spiritual life, you become most effective and efficient in whatever you do but there's a difference you will do it with love not with greed the problem in this world is because people are spiritually undisciplined they do not know how to control their senses they do not know how to control their mind they do not know how to say no to things that they want to do that are bad, and they do not know how to say yes to things that they do not want to do that are good. And therefore, their motivation in their practical life is simply selfishness and greed. But when you learn to control, and you learn to control your mind and your senses, then your mind and senses become peaceful. And in a peaceful state, the love of the soul can manifest. Here's an example that if a lake of water is turbulent, then what happens is all the mud on the bottom just comes up. And the whole lake, every turbulent lake, or pond, let us say pond, becomes absolutely opaque in the sense that all you see is mud. The water is brown. But when that water is perfectly still, 
all the mud settles and the water becomes transparent clear and you can see through that water and see what is on the other side. Now in this world it is described especially in the Vishishtadvaita philosophy of Ramanujacharya and this was also very highly accepted by Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu that there is the sentient and, the, and there is the insentient in this world. The monas, they say, Brahma Satyam Jaganmitya. The absolute truth is, is truth. Brahman is truth. And everything else is illusion. Anything with form, anything with personality, anything that changes, anything but the invisible, impersonal Brahman is an illusion. It does not really exist. But a more perfect understanding than this, according to the Shastra, is to understand that there is the eternal and there is the temporary. They are both real. They both exist. But one is eternal and one is temporary. One is the higher energy of God, one is the lower energy of God. To see the unity is complete knowledge. To simply discard one as illusion is not complete knowledge. Therefore, there is the sentient and there is the insentient. Matter is always insentient. It is dead. And consciousness, the symptom of the soul, is always sentient. And above the sentient and the insentient is the Supreme, who is the cause of all sentient and insentient existence, Janmadya Shayata. God or the Absolute Truth is Him from whom everything emanates. But everything sentient and insentient is included within Him. But still He remains the source. This is essentially the Vashishtadvaita philosophy. Now, what is between the sentient and the insentient? The mind. The, the body and the senses are insentient. The soul, the consciousness, is sentient. Now what is between the two? The mind. When the mind causes the soul to identify itself as the insentient, the body. That is called ignorance, avidya. And when the mind recognizes its true source, the soul, and identifies with its relationship with God, that is called vidya or knowledge. Now, we are very, by conditioning, we are very prone to perceive things through our senses. Now, when the mind is turbulent, uncontrolled, and restless, it becomes like a pond of water that is filled with mud. 
Therefore, when we look within ourselves, all we perceive is the mud of our material conceptions of life. But when the mind is still, like a pond that has no waves, no turbulence, then you can perceive through that crystal clear water to the bottom. So similarly, when the mind is still through discipline, through yoga, then you can perceive through your crystal clear still mind and perceive the eternal nature of your soul. That is why in the sixth chapter of Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, for one whose mind is uncontrolled, his mind is his worst enemy. And for one whose mind is controlled, his mind is his best friend. And then Krishna explains, for one who has controlled his mind, the super soul, realization of God within your heart, is already achieved. When your mind is clear, you simply see through that clear water of your mind and you perceive what is within you, God. So therefore, sixth chapter of Gita describes that without controlling the mind and the senses through yogic discipline, no one makes any real spiritual progress. It is all a hoax. It is all a joke. And of course, to discipline ourselves means to sacrifice. It means to be willing to accept pain. Pain for the sake of achieving something higher. This is the difference between a human and an animal. Shreyas preyas. An animal is simply concerned with satisfying his immediate sensual and mental demands. An animal never philosophically with his intelligence discriminates, is this right or is this wrong? When an animal feels like eating, he eats. When an animal feels like mating, he mates. When an animal feels like sleeping, he sleeps. But human life is meant to put aside the immediate feelings of our mind and senses to understand what will help me achieve the highest purpose of life. What is the difference between a Goswami and a Godas? It is not a question of whether there's desire or not. It is a question of how you are willing to control your desires. If one has an impulse towards sinful activities or for activities that are not conducive to spiritual life, when that impulse comes, if you are willing to say no, then you are a Goswami. Go means the senses and Swami means master. One who is able and willing to say no to his senses, he is a Goswami. 
and one who is always saying yes to the senses, he is Godas, a servant of the senses. Our Guru Maharaj used to use the example. Actually, he used to use this example in Bombay. I was just listening to a tape of Srila Prabhupada. He was giving a lecture in Bombay. He said, when you're walking down the street and you see a nice cinema, and your senses say, oh, go into the cinema. If you say, no, I will not go into cinema, then you are a Goswami. If you say, oh, yes, very nice cinema, then you are a Godas. Because what does the cinema have to do with God? If it has to do with God, that's another thing. But from the way the billboards look with all these purple creatures with knives in their hands and embracing people, and it doesn't look like these movies have much to do with God. If you go by a restaurant and you see, oh, this is very nice, then you are Godas. If you go by a restaurant, you understand, this food is not conducive to my spiritual upliftment. No. Your senses are saying, yes, yes, yes. But your intelligence is saying, no. That is Goswami. Goswami is not a matter of taking a vow and wearing saffron. Goswami is a matter of the quality of your life. There are many sannyasis who are godasas. And there are many grihastas who are Goswamis. It is not a rubber stamp. In true spiritual culture, nothing is rubber stamped. Everything is based on the quality. It is said in the uh, Purana, Sarvopadiva nirmuktam tatparadvena nirmalam rishikena rishikesa sevanam bhaktaruchyata. How do we control and discipline our mind and senses? Simply by saying no, 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 no. You cannot endure very long. Krishna says this in Gita. Parandrasvani vartate. He said, one who controls his mind and senses and restrains them from the objects of the senses, he will eventually fall down to sense enjoyment if he is not experiencing something higher. The example of this is Vishwamitra Muni. Vishwamitra Muni was very great yogi in the process of saying no to his senses. He would torture himself and endure it. My God, what he could do, we cannot even dream of doing. In the winter, he would go to Gangotri. Have you ever been to Gangotri? I've been there in the summer. Have you ever tried to bathe in the water? How many people have been to Gangotri? Raise your hand. How many of you have bathed in the water there? How many, how long did you stay in the water? Huh? First of all, did you go in the winter or the summer? Summer. How long did you stay in the water? How long? 30 seconds. Why did you take such a fast bath? After all, you go all that way, the roads up to the Himalayas, it takes days and days to get there. Especially Vishwarupi was vomiting out the window the whole time. I remember I was sitting behind him. Huh? You go through all that trouble to go there and you only stay in the water 30 seconds? Why? 
Very cold, huh? That's the reason. Very cold in the summer. Well, Vishwamitra Muni, he went there in the winter. When it was ice, and he would crack the ice, and he would go in the water up to his neck, and he would just sit like this for six months without eating, without sleeping, but just meditation. Don't think it didn't hurt him, but he was willing to tolerate and endure and say no to his mind and senses. No matter how much they screamed, it's cold, it's cold. <laughs> Let's go. He'd say no. I'm hungry, I'm hungry. No. And in the summer, he would go to the deserts and put eight fires around him, blazing fires, and sit in meditation. Obviously, you know, his mind and senses were screaming out. Uh, go back to Gango Tree, it's nice and cool there. <laughs> no. Huh? This is such a degree of, of endurance. But ultimately, when you gain great powers, you can be sure in this material world that there will be someone who is envious of you. Huh? The better you are at somebody, at, at anything, the more people will envy you. This is material nature. Do not be surprised. We shouldn't be upset about these things because it's just the nature of this world. Whatever field of activity you is, to the degree you're good at it, to that degree you are a target of envy. Hmm? Because everybody wants to be the best. And if someone sees that you're better than them, you are their competitor and they become very, very envious of you. Whether you are a businessman, or a doctor, or a lawyer, or a manager, or a brahmachari, or a sannyasi, or a housewife, or whatever you are, the better you are, it's the better you become, the more efficient, the more you are a target of envy. So Vishwamitra Muni became very, very powerful, and therefore many people were afraid of him. Because the greater you are, the more you be, the more envious people think you are belittling their position. People who are non-envious, when they see a great soul, they say, I want to serve you. But people who are envious, they say, I want to conquer you. I want to expose you. Hmm? That's why Krishna told Arjuna, you have one qualification. You can understand what I'm saying and I've chosen you to receive this knowledge because you are non-envious. You can intellectually understand, but to actually assimilate spiritual principles, you have to be non-envious. To really grasp the concepts. Because ultimately, there's only envy toward one person. That's God. He's the one that's full of all opulences. Whatever opulence anyone has, it's only due to Krishna. Krishna manifests himself through this person or that person according to their karma, according to their desire, according to their spiritual achievement, their surrender. Krishna reveals his qualities. 
So what you are envious of is God. Krishna has six opulences. Aishwaryasya, Samagasya, Viryasya, Syasasakya. One of them is Vairagya, renunciation. Krishna was manifesting a, just a tiny little flickering trace of his supreme opulence of renunciation through Vishwamitra Muni. And people became very envious, especially Lord Indra. Lord Indra was thinking, my God, he's become better than me. He may become, people may get behind him and they, he may take over my heavenly planet. So when you're envious of someone, what do you want to do? You want to destroy that person's name and fame. So he sent Menaka, beautiful Apsara. And he said, Menaka, do your thing. And she said, yes, very nice. And she went by Vishwamitra Muni and she walked. And when she walked, her ankle bells were tinkling very sweetly. Tinkle, tinkle, tinkle. And her bangles were also making very sweet musical sounds. And when he heard this, he looked at her and he said, ah, very nice. And he just completely forgot all of his principles and he became just a very fallen conditioned soul. Why? Although he was saying no to the senses because he was not experiencing something higher by saying yes to higher forms of pleasure, he could not maintain his vairagya, his renunciation. But then we also have the example of Haridas Thakur. Haridas Thakur was always tasting the sweet nectar of the holy name. He was not so concerned with being famous as a renunciate. He was simply concerned with being the humble servant of the Lord. Maya herself, in all of her, in all of her prowess, she came to test him. In the middle of the night, she approached him and ran away. He just she said, "I want to enjoy with you." He said, "Well, I'm chanting Hare Krishna. You just be, wait, wait your turn. Now I'm with Krishna. Hare Krishna, Krishna." She she ended up surrendering to him and became his disciple. He was becoming so great also that one Ramchandra Khan. He was envious of him. This Haridas Thakur is becoming so spiritually recognized that people are not going to surrender to me so much. They are not. He's interfering in my sense gratification. Instead of trying to become his servant, Ramchandra Khan was thinking we must destroy him. He sent a prostitute to Haridas Thakur. And every night that prostitute, who was very beautiful, every part of her body was just perfectly arranged to bewilder a man's mind. And when she came to Haridas, she said, Haridas, you are a young man and you are very handsome. And just see, I am also a very young woman. I am very, very beautiful. Everyone knows. So why don't we enjoy? And he said, ah, yes, we should enjoy. But he was not thinking of that type of enjoyment. He was thinking of giving, she was thinking of giving him a certain type of enjoyment. And he was giving her, he was thinking of giving her a completely other kind of enjoyment. He said, you just wait here and let me chant Hare Krishna. 
because I cannot have anything done until I finish my rounds. He was disciplined. And he sat there, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram, Hare Hare, all night long. At the end of the night, the prostitute was saying, what is wrong? How could you not do with me what I want? You've been chanting all night. He said, tomorrow I promise. The next day, after three nights, by hearing the holy name from him, she fell at his feet and said, I must admit, I have been sent by Ramchandra Khan just to destroy your life. But now, after associating with your divinity, and after hearing the beautiful sound of the name of Krishna, I want to become your disciple. I want to surrender to you. He said, you give up all your bad habits, you come here and you chant Hare Krishna. He said, actually, when I heard about Ramchandra Khan not liking me, I was ready to go. I don't want to cause conflict. I only stayed here three extra days just to make you a pure devotee. You see, Haridas Thakur was able to restrain his senses and say no to the mind and senses because he was so busy saying yes to positive, pure spiritual principles. And bhakti yoga means to fill your life so much with positive spiritual activities that you do not have time for those things which are destructive to our spiritual progress. We are, it will be painful, it will be a state of suffering to say no to anything we are conditioned to doing that is bad. We must endure it, but at the same time, we must replace it by keeping our mind and senses busy in positive spiritual actions. Discipline. But understand how discipline works. It's not that by your endeavor, because you are very staunch and you are disciplining yourself, that you will make spiritual advancement. That is not the secret. The secret is, by your disciplining yourself, by your accepting things favorable for devotional service and rejecting those things unfavorable, by that sincere expression of your sacrifice, you attract the mercy of God. You please the spiritual master and you please Krishna. And by their mercy, it is described in this verse, you become free from all attractions and all aversions in this world. A devotee is completely depending on the mercy of Guru and Krishna. Therefore, a true devotee will never accept any credit for anything. He understands that it is whatever spiritual progress I've made it is only by the mercy of Krishna and the mercy of the great saints Krishna's mercy comes through the guru and the sadhus but we have to learn how to receive that mercy the process of receiving that mercy is expressing our sincere desire through our actions 
It's just like many of you are parents. If a child does not try to get good grades in school, will the parent think he's serious about school? Huh? What if the child says, Mommy, I really want to please you and I really want to do good in school, but I will not do homework and I will not go to school? Huh? The mother will think, what kind of way of pleasing me is this? If you want to please me, you'll do what it takes to please me. You'll discipline yourself. So similarly, if we want to please God, we have to be willing to perform sacrifice to show him that we want to please him. If God, if Krishna is giving us certain certain rules and regulations, do not do this and do this, and we are still doing it, what does that mean? We really do not want to please him. If we really want to please him, we'll be willing to sacrifice anything to please him. Krishna sees our sincerity by how much we are willing to discipline ourselves to say yes to the things he wants and no to the things he doesn't want, no matter what we feel, no matter what we like. And through this process, we please him. Our motive should be to please him. Our motive should not be to be spiritually advanced. Because if your motive is to be spiritually advanced, you'll never become spiritually advanced. Because you cannot become spiritual advanced by your own power. Your motive should simply be to please Krishna, to please the spiritual master, to please the saints. If I please them, then that is spiritual advancement. If I do not please them, there's no question of spiritual advancement. means by regulating your senses, by following the principles of devotion, you obtain the complete mercy of God. And by that mercy, you become from the core of your heart purified and free from all attachment and aversion. Just like we have explained so many examples of the things we have to say no to. But it is explained that one who develops a taste for hearing the glories of the Lord, one who is always willing to say yes to hear the Bhagavat, from the person Bhagavats, to submit yourself before great souls and hear from them and take pleasure in hearing the, the philosophy and the glories of the Lord. Krishna within your heart is so satisfied that he personally cleanses all the impurities within your heart and reveals himself to you. The process of the Bhagavatam for self-realization is to learn to develop the higher taste of hearing and chanting the glories of the Lord and simultaneously forbidding your mind and senses from doing anything contrary. Ah, now we may say, but I just do not have much of a taste for hearing and chanting the glories of the Lord. I've tried what to do. 
The Bhagavatam describes what to do. Shru Shru Shro Shadhanasya Vasudeva Kataruchi Syan Mahatsevaya Vipra Pundyatiratana Sevanat. By rendering service to the great souls, Mahatsevam. Punyatiratana Sevanat. Then great that is great service is done. Through that process of getting the blessings of the great souls, the desire to hear about Krishna, the desire to chant the glories of the Lord will awaken within your heart. Just like there is a story of Narada Muni. In his previous life, he was a maidservant's son. But simply because he pleased the great souls, humbled himself before them and got their blessings, through that process, he developed a desire to hear about and glorify Krishna. Now, it wasn't just an automatic mechanical process. With that desire, he disciplined his life. To accept things favorable and reject things unfavorable. And he became so purified by that process that by the mercy of the Lord in his next birth, he became Narada Muni. Krishna gave him that infinite treasure of prema bhakti, pure love, to distribute to all the world. So really, this is the greatest achievement in human civilization. The greatest achievement in human civilization is to give. To selflessly give for the benefit and welfare of others. There is no more noble man in this world than a man that is charitable. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu explained to us that the greatest charity you can give is spiritual enlightenment. Bharata bhumite hoila manusya janma jara janma saradaka kara para upakar. Especially, Lord Chaitanya said, anyone born in Bharat Varsha, India, it is your birthright to know Krishna and to love Krishna. And it is the greatest perfection of your life through disciplining your life according to the principles of God as handed down by the great sadhus and the scriptures to find that treasure of pure love within your heart and then to distribute the contents of that treasure to all living beings. Our Vishwarupa is here and Dwarkadish. Uh, we see that they are, uh, they are spiritual people. They are doctors by profession. But their motivation for being doctors is not simply to become rich and famous, but to use whatever God-given talents they have, also our Sri Govinda is also doctor. They want to use their God-given talents to actually help elevate people on a physical, mental, and spiritual level. Spiritual life is meant to be holistic. We do not neglect the body or the mind or the soul. Our spiritual master, Srila Prabhupada, 
he wrote letter to all of his temples in India when he was living. He said, if you want to please me, there should be within the radius of 20 miles from every temple, there should not be a single hungry man. And it so happened that practically every one of his temples were in the cities. He said, we should have so much prasad. He's just reading this letter, beautiful letter. There was a man from Panama City in Central America, a devotee, initiated devotee. And he had been preaching to many Indians there. And he had $10,000. The Indians donated that $10,000 for a temple there. Prabhupada said, if you really want to do something great for mankind, you should send that $10,000 to India to buy food to feed the poor. Huh? Of course, in other places, he also told people, let us build temples. <laughs> but the principle is, the temple is meant to elevate people's souls. And the food distribution is meant to elevate the people's bodies and souls, because it's prasadam, where people understand that the process of healing is what takes place when you take to spiritual life. This is based on compassion. This is based on mercy. So to the degree a person, according to his natural duty as a human being, experiences the treasure of love and compassion within his heart, to that degree he is the most charitable welfare worker of all living beings. We have other examples of businessmen like Dr. Desai, we have, <clears throat> although in his industry he is making reasonable sums of money, I believe, but yet his money, he understands it is not his. It is to be used out of compassion for the upliftment of humanity, in a holistic manner. In the service of God, let us elevate people by distributing prasad, by giving medical care, by distributing books, by distributing the holy name, by making people understand the compassion of great souls. His wife, Maitali Priya, uh, her father, Arvind Mafudlal, my God, he does about 20,000 free eye surgeries a year in Chitrakut. He gives out tens and thousands of free plates of prasad every, every year. He also has built beautiful temple to elevate people on all levels, mental, physical, spiritual. This is the real success of our life. Whether we're big or whether we're small, whether we're rich or whether we're poor, whether we're intellectual or whether we're illiterate. The real question is, according to our capacity, how much is the quality of our life meant for the purpose of elevating people's consciousness, giving in charity, for the body, the mind, and the soul. If you simply give for the body, it's not enough. If you simply give for the mind, it's not enough. If you simply give for the soul, nobody will listen to you. Huh? So therefore, the body, mind, and soul, that is Krishna consciousness. To rejuvenate the lost God consciousness within the hearts. But in order to give, we must have.
That means we must accept the process of yoga. We must be willing to make sacrifice. This one lady was asking me today, I want to do some service. How do I know if I'm doing enough? I told her, it's very easy. If it doesn't hurt, you're not doing enough. They say in America, no pain, no gain. Whether it's your time, whether it's your energy, whether it's your wealth, whatever it is that you're offering in compassion to others in the service of God, if it doesn't hurt, you're not doing it enough. There must be some suffering. There must be some sacrifice. Otherwise, what's the question of love? Without sacrifice, love is meaningless. A mother who just does for the child what she likes to do for the child is not a loving mother. But a mother who is willing to endure any difficulty, any suffering to help her child in its well-being, that is love. Human life is meant for sacrifice. So when we discipline ourselves by following the regulative principles, by chanting regularly the names of God, by reading the scriptures regularly, by associating with saintly persons regularly, through this discipline, through this sacrifice, our mind becomes peaceful. Our mind becomes still. And by the mercy of God, he reveals himself through that clear mind. And then that great wealth we can distribute from our heart in the form of love and compassion to all living beings. And one who understands and pursues this principle is most fortunate, is peaceful in this world, and in the next. Is there any questions? Is there any questions? Yes. You said that uh, you should say no to senses. When senses demand, you should say no. So many times we want to say no, we are convinced we should say no. <laughs> What is the purport? <laughs> what is the purport to this sloka that has been resounded by the higher, higher voice? Time for prasada. <laughs> See, that's why we need someone who is a resident. We needed a one of the confidential associates to interpret the voice, the higher voices. I would have gone on for another hour. <laughs> but now we know that it is time for Prasado. So you may have questioned, but 
Guru Maharaj says it's time for the <laughs>